Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. This is your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I am Robert Winfrey, and heads up, I'm flying solo again this week. It's just a busy time of year, guys. Uh, Jeff is... Again, stuff. I don't want to speak too much for Jeff. He let me know that he wasn't going to be able to make it, which, again, sucks. I like talking to Jeff, but real life in other areas does supersede on occasion, and hopefully you all understand. So you're just getting me this time around. On the docket this afternoon, evening, morning, whenever you happen to be listening, last night UFC on ESPN 7 took place and was an event. Uh... Really, a pretty solid one all around, but we'll get into the specifics, the fallout and whatnot. And the big half of the equation, UFC 245 is next week. The last pay-per-view of the year. And uh, the best main card I think the company's put together all year. That that five-fight main card is just brilliant from start to finish. I mean, okay, Durandamy and Nunes is probably the weakest link, but... When a title fight bet- featuring, you know, Amanda Nunes is the weakest link, that's that says a fair bit about the rest of the card. So we'll go over a full preview of that. And then, news of the week. Uh, not a tremendous amount. The UFC did some house cleaning. Bunch of guys got, so, bunch of guys no longer with the company. Also, uh, the UFC South Korea card had a change in the main event. And we'll certainly talk about that, because... It's an odd one. Uh, Just the totality of circumstance is a little bit odd. So that's kind of what you're in for this time around. Alrighty, let us jump into UFC on ESPN 7. Uh, The main event. uh, This was a pretty good fight. Especially for a heavyweight fight that went into the fifth round. Uh, Jarzinho Rosenstrike completes a heck of a rookie year in the UFC, knocks out Alistair Overeem at 4.56 of the fifth round. Uh, Overeem started well. I think I gave him the first three rounds. Uh, Rosenstrike the fourth. And I I don't remember who I had winning the fifth. Because, I mean, it's, it's a somewhat relevant point, just because the method here was a little bit odd. Uh, Rosenstrike backs up over him, hits him with a bit of a left hook and a follow-up right that just splits his upper lip. Uh, one of the worst lip splits I've ever seen. You can find pictures of it online if you're so inclined. And there's actually one in my uh, coverage thread. Uh, that drops over him kind of into the fence. Rosenstrike kind of tries to do the walk-off thing. Overeem looks like he's sort of trying to get up. The ref comes in. It's... Uh, Overeem's statement sense has been that he feels the stoppage was a little bit fast. And I can see his point. I don't necessarily agree, but... I mean, if Rosenstrick lands one follow-up blow, even if it doesn't put him out completely, it's, it's enough to just completely nullify the argument to be made that, you know, Overeem was, you know, maybe on the wrong end of this. Uh, again, the first few rounds, Overeem did very, very well. He moved well. He was striking good at long distance. Mixed in a few takedowns. Uh, Rosenstrike really had a bit of a deficiency off of his back. Now, some of that is just Overeem being a really good top player. 
And some of that is, you know, we've also never really seen Rosenstreich there for prolonged periods of time, but he did a good job at controlling Overeem's posture. Uh, Overeem was able to land on him from top position, but he never really got an opportunity to tee off the way he has in the past. And then the fourth, again, the fourth was the round I gave Rosenstreich. Two of the judges did as well, one didn't, which is odd. Rosenstreich just kind of started getting to the target a bit more in the fourth. Overeem's footwork fell off just a hair, and he started getting into the fence and just covering up more often. And that just let Rosenstreich land punches on in flurries, and then he'd back off, which was a little bit frustrating on occasion, but also understandable. This is what I'm going to have to rewatch to kind of really get a handle on it, I think. Rosenstreich and Overeem are both very high-level kickboxers, and they were doing some things with their fakes and their feints, and so some of their decisions that I'm not sure I fully, you know, I didn't fully grasp watching it live, which is fairly common for me. Some stuff I pick up on right away. Some stuff you got to really kind of study repeatedly. Uh, again, big, big win for Rosenstreich, who is now 4-0 in the UFC. He only debuted earlier this year. And while this performance showcased some areas he definitely needs to work on, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It also showcased a fair bit of resilience to negative positions. And that's certainly something to... I, don't know, I, like, I know that... There's going to be comparisons between him and Ngannou in no small part because he called out Francis Ngannou after the fact. And Ngannou's last two fights leading up to his title shot were knocking out Andre Arlovsky and Alistair Overeem back-to-back. And, I mean, look, they're both heavyweights with name value who are just very chinny. I don't think that's a controversial statement. And again, some of that might be a product of heavyweight being, you know, just the division with a lot of mass being thrown around, but they've there's a lot of knockouts between them. L- losses as well as wins, in all fairness. Uh, so, I'm not saying we should hotshot Rosenstreich into the title picture. The heavyweight title picture itself is a little bit murky. I know the UFC is working towards uh, the trilogy fight between Cormier and Miocic. And in no small part, they're doing this because there's not really another viable option. <laughs> uh, I know Nganu's hanging out there, but with Stipe as the champion, again, that really kind of ruins Nganu's desi- uh, chances at getting the next title shot because Stipe so thoroughly bested him the first time. Uh, Derek Lewis is kind of hanging out, but he's not really in the title mix. He's also got that fight with Ilya Latifi coming up. Uh, again, Overeem was in a position to maybe get back into the title picture, but you know, obviously not now with this loss. But at the same time, I'm not sure this puts Rosenstreich as the number one contender. I would say if he beats Ngannou, like if they make that fight in the near future and he's able to come out on top, that would be five wins in the UFC. I think he's a viable contender at that point. I mean, as it stands, he's a decent enough, like, short-notice replacement. Which he was for this fight. I mean, he'd stepped in on... Not like, you know, a week's notice, but short notice for a five-round fight. And acquitted himself very, very well. So, you know, 
good win for him. Sucks for Overeem, but this is kind of the story of his career at this point. He'll put together a few good wins and then have a loss that derails things. And he just... This is the penny on the tracks that he hit and got derailed by this time. But, again, for a heavyweight fight to go all five rounds, almost, you know, almost literally the entire 25 minutes, and for it to be engaging the vast majority of the time is a rarity... And it's something we absolutely got here. At least I did. I don't know. Your individual mileage may vary. I certainly can't speak for all of your personal tastes. But it was a good main event. And a good win for a guy who's definitely on the up and up as far as what's next in the UFC's heavyweight division. If you are if you weren't aware of Rosenstreich prior to this fight, you should be now because he's poised to be a very relevant player in the division going forward. Okay, again, solid enough main event. Uh, I'm not complaining about it, and it's probably one I'm going to rewatch just to really kind of pay attention to the nuance of what each guy is doing. Right, co-main event. Uh, this one fought to a majority draw. Meridian Rodriguez and Cynthia Calvillo was one twenty-nine twenty-eight, I believe, for Rodriguez, and then two twenty-eight twenty-eights, giving us the draw. I have no issue with the twenty-eight twenty-eight scorecard. Um, doing it live, I have to apologize for this for this fight in particular. Doing it live, I gave Calvillo the first, which I'm not sure is correct. I my computer had some issues <laughs> during at a few intermittent points during this event, and it would just my stream because I like I watch from my computer. I have ESPN Plus. I have like I'm not. <laughs> This is on ESPN. I don't have... I'm not stealing it, but I am watching it on my computer, and there's a variety of streaming services, and be that through my cable provider, because they let me do it, or ESPN's website, because my cable provider lets me do it. If I prefer their functionality, I can do it there. And I just would get these bits where it would kind of stutter, slow down, slow down, and then jump to catch back up to live. And it caused me to miss about two minutes or so of the first round. And I, I, I... Again, I apologize. I can't do anything about it. But... I Even from what I saw, I would have no issue with giving the first to Rodriguez. So I'm probably... So again, there's only so much of my scoring I'm like going to stand behind on the first. Clear second round for Rodriguez. Then... The issue becomes whether or not you give Calvillo a 10-8 in the third. And I don't really have an issue with her getting a 10-8 in the third. Even under the old rule set, which is what we were under last night, uh, you, can, you can argue a 10-8 in the third first. She had a lot of positional dominance. She landed a lot of damage. Uh, again, doing it live, I kind of thought she had... Uh, Rodriguez had maybe done enough. She landed a really nice head kick like right before the end of the fight that I thought might have kind of done enough to push you away from the 10-8. But, I'm, again, I don't think it's wrong at all. Uh, it sucks for both of them to fight as hard as they did for a draw, but uh, this was an odd one from Calvillo. Uh, not only did she miss weight by, like, five pounds, five and a half if you want to hold to a strict 125 limit, uh, four and a half if you want to go give her the extra 116, for a non-title fight. A bad, bad weight miss. 
Uh, anytime you're, you know, I mean, you could argue any weight miss is bad, but when I've got a, you know, a barbell that weighs as much as you as you missed weight by, like that's not the best thing. And, but that said, I've kind of been on record for a while as saying I think MMA could use more draws, in that I think more there's a lot of times when that is the correct outcome, that judges are just uh, between being like disincentivized by commission protocols and just a general like lack of desire to go through with it on an individual level, we don't see a tremendous amount of them. But I think the draw is probably correct here. Uh, Calvillo is a bizarrely frustrating fighter to watch in many respects. Because when she's able to implement her game, she is exceptional. Her top control, her passing, her submission threats, her ability to inflict damage from the top, all top-shelf, elite-level stuff. On the feet, not so much. And... Some of her takedowns are a little bit on the rough side. That's kind of what uh, halted a lot of her in the first round. Rodriguez did a really good job of moving, angling whenever she tried to close distance, landing, intercepting knee strikes. And she, to Calvillo's credit, she gutted through it and had a really big third. That's the only reason she was able to not lose the fight. But Calvillo... And again, I give her a lot of... And this is not unique to her, but I think... This was her, I think, like 10th or 11th professional fight, so there's a degree of refinement that is just going to be necessary to anyone with that few fights. That said, she's also 32. And there's some developments that need to start manifesting for her rather quickly if she's going to really kind of capitalize on the good aspects of her game and make a legitimate run. Uh, Rodriguez, she's now has two draws in the UFC. I believe she's uh, two wins, no losses, two draws. And has a really good striking game. Again, good in the clinch, good knee and elbow work. But she gave up a really, really big third round in this fight, and that's ultimately what cost her. Uh, there was another heavyweight fight. This fight. Um, ben Rothwell defeats Stefan Struve via TKO at 4.57 of the second round. This fight lasted a lot longer than you might think if I told you it ended at the end of the second. Because in the first, Ben Rothwell tries to kick Stefan Struve as he's circling away with just an inside leg kick or a body kick. But he kicked Stefan Struve pretty squarely in the crotch. And this was a this was a bad one. Struve then took he took almost the full five minutes to recover. And let me be clear, I don't begrudge any fighter who chooses to do that. At all. Like you get hit you get kicked really hard in the groin, especially by someone as big as Ben Rothwell. Both these guys are like two hundred and sixty five pounds, give or take. Uh yeah, you take your time, buddy. <laughs> uh, it happened again in the second, and it caused Rothwell to be deducted a point. In all... Look, I get that it was an unintentional foul, but in t there's only so much of a break that you get for 
intentionality when you're breaking the rules. And given how bad that first groin shot was, maybe they should have taken a point right away. I don't know. I Again, I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of fouls in MMA, and part of the reason you see so many fouls is the lack of consistent enforcement. Yeah, I think I heard uh, Jeremy Lambert once say that Czech Congo's the smartest guy in MMA, because you know you're never going to get a point deducted for the first time you hit someone in the groin. So you should always, if you don't get one in during the course of a fight, you're just wasting it. And, again, it's a quasi-facetious point, but there's a fair degree of accuracy, at least as far as the observation of officiating goes. Uh, towards the end of the second, after, again, he got, Struve got kicked in the groin again. Again, took a while to kind of regain himself. Uh, but uh, Rothwell just bullied him back into the fence after that, and uppercuts, punches, just unloaded until Struve kind of collapsed. Um, Struve wasn't happy. <laughs> Look, if I got kicked twice in the groin by Ben Rothwell, I wouldn't be happy either. At the same time, man, if you were compromised and couldn't fight, you shouldn't have come back out to keep fighting. That's, again, that sucks. That really does, but that's kind of the way you should approach it. Um, this was Rothwell's first win in couple of years. Yeah, prior to this, his last win was in 2016 when he beat Josh Barnett, so been a while. Uh, this this fight, I just I really need to bring this up from a pacing perspective. This event was top to bottom really solid. The pacing was okay. They this whole event, they wound up doing a lot of uh, human interest stuff because uh, they're like, oh, what was it like? Uh, I know they were do they were doing a lot of like pushing for the. This was almost a like a charity drive kind of event. I don't mean that unkindly. But they did a lot of kind of uh, pushing people to donate to the, uh, like the V, it's the V something foundation that uh, is big into cancer research that was founded either by or in memory of the, uh, the high, the college, not high school, the college basketball coach whose name escapes me. Last name started with a V because he was always Coach V. I know there's a bunch of you screaming at me the correct answer right now, and I apologize. I, I don't remember. They were doing a lot of pushing for that, and they, uh, as well as an NBA personality, Stuart Scott, who passed away a few years ago due to cancer. And so they did a lot of stuff between fights where they were uh, either doing interviews or telling the sto or had video packages telling the story of individual fighters and either their personal experience with cancer or someone in their close family. So, yeah, Joe Lozon, whose son was basically born with cancer, which is one of the worst things. Uh, Rocco Martin, whose mother was recently diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. Uh, that new female fighter, uh, Cortez, I think, Tracy Cortez, who lost her mother and brother. Uh, they did the uh, video package on, uh, oh, Tatiana Suarez, who's, uh, who defeated cancer, uh, the 
story that's been told quite a few times by now, but the relationship between Cody Garbrandt and uh, oh, Maddox Maple, who's a the who you know, the kid with who used to have leukemia. I mean, still, I don't know. He's in remission, so I don't know whether that means you still have it or not. So. Forgive me, I'm not up to speed on all the specifics of the individual terminology. So they did a lot of stuff like that, and in the past, those kinds of things have slowed down an event. Not so much here. The event was moving along rather nicely. Uh, this fight between Rothwell and Struve just ground everything to a halt. Some of that was the action in the cage, such as it was. Some of that was the time that you know, Struve took recovering from being kicked in the groin, and it sucks. And again, I don't begrudge Struve one bit. If you need the five minutes, buddy, take the five minutes. You're the one in there fighting. That's not going to stop me from a viewer perspective from noting the effect that this all had on the flow of the event. So again, that event and then uh, the draw for Rodriguez and Calvillo took a lot of the air out of the event too, despite that being, again, the correct outcome. Uh, so, again, good win for Rothwell, such as it is. Uh, Struve, I don't know, man. Look, Stefan Struve and Ben Rothwell have both been in the UFC since 2009. I, I For some reason, I thought Struve had been around longer. He's fought more, but I, uh, which might have led to that misconception on my part. Um, look, they exist. Uh, they are who they are as far as their abilities go and your general excitement for them at this point is going to be kind of set. Uh, the UFC, I don't know, like the UFC won't cut them for some reason because, I don't know, they, do they just really not want Bellator to have anybody for Ryan Bader to fight at heavyweight? Uh, it's... Again, the fight existed. It wasn't good. Uh, not, a whole else, not a whole lot else to that. Uh Next up, Aspen Ladd defeated Yana Kunitskaya via TKO 33 seconds into the third round. Uh, you know, surprisingly good performance from Kunitskaya, or less than ideal performance from Ladd, depending on how you want to look at it, through the first two rounds. Uh, Kunitskaya's clinch game really did seem to stifle Ladd a fair bit, and it took Ladd a while to kind of sort out her punching. She did a lot of pushing with her punches rather than actually throwing or snapping them. Uh, then, third round, Aspen Ladd comes out, lands a left hook that drops Kunitskaya, gets on top, and never lets her recover. Uh, much needed win for Ladd, uh, if she was going to kind of rebuild herself after the after getting starched by Jermaine Durand to me. Uh, then at bantamweight, Cody uh, Stamen defeated Song Yadong via majority decision. Uh, there were two 28-28s, and then one 29-27. Uh, some of the issues here stem from what happened in the first round. You, um, Song lands... I say Song because he is Chinese. Song is his family name. Yudong is his first name. So I'm happy to say it as it is traditionally presented as far you know, uh, family name first, but I'm also going to refer to him by his family name. Uh, Song just forgot a little bit about where he was at the, in the moment. Had a really kind of tight front headlock on... Staman trying to stifle a takedown and landed an illegal knee. Uh, which is what kind of where some of the stuff stems from because he landed it, got a point deducted, which is correct. Again, I am I'm not at all opposed to that. 
especially for kneeing someone in the head when they're down. Like, and furthermore, the the way they were situated, it was relatively obvious that Staman had one of his knees down. Like, there are certain positions that it can be difficult for one fighter to tell whether or not their opponent is downed. And again, we were under the old rule set last night, so anything other than the soles of your feet means you're down. Now, most fighters just don't throw knees in that position because it's not worth the risk. But if there's, like, a severe blind spot as far as, well, could, could they tell or not, I can see a little bit of leeway. Not a lot, but a little. In circumstances where it's fairly obvious that your opponent has a knee down and you still throw it, yeah, you you need... Again, that's the rule. It should be enforced. But that does kind of leave you in the awkward spot as far as the first round goes of... If you thought Song won the first round, then it's a draw round at 9-9. And if you thought Staman won, he won 10-8. I'm pretty sure Song won the second, and then Staman had a really solid third round. Uh... Got some good takedowns, lot of top control time, lot of it, Song's ability to regain his feet in the third was basically gone. He got controlled and kind of beat up a little bit. And so again, it sucks for Staman, who, but if you if you gave Yadong the first, if you gave Song the first, then that round's nine nine. Song takes the second, Staman takes the third. Voila. 28-28. Uh, really sucks for Staman, who... Again, you can argue even won the second. Again, none of the judges gave him the second, but certainly didn't get blown out of the water. And the whole, so the whole thing comes down to who won the first round, because that dictates whether we get a draw or not. And the first round was not exactly a decisive round. I mean, even taking away the point, de- the point deduction... Wasn't a very clear-cut round. Uh, again, I, when I say it sucks for Staman, he had the most definitive round of the fight, that being the third. And I think if you were to, you know, ask who won the fight in you know, kind of the older way of the old scoring criteria, yeah, it was Staman. But we score round by round. And, again, it sucks for him, but... <sighs> If you're one of the reasons I'm not opposed to draws to more draws in MMA is I think it will partially encourage more definitive fighting. Now that's not to say more finishes, but if you want to if you want to win a round, then make sure you win the round decisively. And that's not always easy. Again, I'm I'm not at all saying that fighters are lazy about this. Not at all. But there's a lot of fighters right now who, especially kind of the early rounds, go basically 50-50 with their opponent and then become obstinate when the round, when a round that could go either way doesn't go in their favor. And again, it's not an easy thing. I'm not saying it's easy. But if you want to win rounds, I'm okay with that being a method of victory. Just make it decisive and... Or uh, you lose a significant amount of the ability to complain about the decision. Um, 
a fight that was much easier to score. <laughs> Rob Font defeated Ricky Simone via unanimous decision. 229-28s, 130-27. I'm a little... I don't agree with 30-27. I thought Simone had the first. Because he cracked Rob Font along the fence and kind of wobbled him for a bit. But after the first, Font just stopped the vast majority of Simone's takedowns. Anytime he did get taken down, he bounced up very, very quickly. And just really, really slick, straight punching from Font. A lot of good, solid one-twos, a really good jab. Just kept troubling Simone. And... You know, Font's one of those guys who I think when you watch them, you... If you watch certain segments of their fights, you go, why isn't this guy higher ranked? Why isn't he in a different position on the card? You know, something like that. And if there's other... And then as the fight kind of goes on, you will get these moments when you go, oh, that's why. And it's... uh, It's rough. But fighting is a rough business. And Font is a very, very exciting fighter. I like watching him fight. But... I think at this point, we might also be looking at his ceiling, give or take. He's, I think, currently number 10 or so in the UFC. And he's he's got some really impressive wins. I mean, he you know, submitted Douglas Silva de Andrade. He beat Thomas Almeida. He beat Sergio Pettis. But he's also had a couple of key losses. Um, lost to John Lineker, and hey, that's just a tough fight, man. John Lineker's a tough out. Lost to Pedro Munoz, lost to Rafael Asensal, and Asensal is, again, a, those are tough outs. I'm not saying that those guys are easy to beat. But if you're not beating those guys, this is about the level you're going to be at. Uh, which is, again, that's a really kind of rough thing to have to acknowledge, but fighting is a very, very unforgiving business. And that was the main card. Uh Again, really solid event. Uh, as for the prelims, Tim Means defeated Tiago Alves with a guillotine choke in the first round, uh, 238 of the first. Means hit a really nice... Uh, first of all, Alves hit him with a couple of body kicks. I think only two, but the first one, like his... You could visibly see the outline of his foot in the side of Tim Means. Uh, that was a hard kick. And, you know, Means is the kind of guy who marks up easy. And I say that as someone who also marks up very easily, so I, I sympathize. Uh, but the whole finishing sequence, uh, Means hit a really nice... Uh, he was fighting Southpaw. Hit a low-line sidekick to the thigh of Tiago Alves and then followed up with a straight left that dropped Alves. Uh, then he jumped on top, pounded on him. As Alves was trying to get up along the fence, he grabbed the choke, forced the submission. Um... This went about as expected, I hate to say it. Uh, you know, Alves is just really, really past his prime, and I hate to be one of those guys who says, you know, visually, but his body doesn't look the same as pre-USADA. Now, some of that's he was much younger at that point in time, but also, yeah, look, I, I'm also of the opinion that the vast majority of fighters are still on stuff, and he's far from an outlier in the sense that he was, you know, smashing guys. And a lot of the guys he was smashing were probably juiced up as well, so, you know. If you're both doing it, <laughs> is it actually cheating kind of a thing? 
Now, that said, Alves is just two and six in his last eight fights, and one of those was a... He should have lost that Max Griffin fight. That was kind of a gimme decision in his hometown of Fortaleza. Uh, it means, I think this broke a losing streak for him as well. No, he just had the loss to Nico Price, but he... Um, was it in that fight? He He damaged his leg in or after one of those fights. I can't remember which one. I think it was the Price fight. Like the way he fell, injured his leg or something, and because he had some success against Price, but Nico Price is a tough dude to really kind of get out of there. <laughs> um, at featherweight, Billy uh, Quarantillo defeated Jacob Kilburn via triangle choke, uh, 318 of the second. This was not a competitive fight at all. Quarantillo smashed this guy from start to finish. Um, just an absolute, absolute butt kicking. Um, at another catch weight, because Matt Sales missed weight, Bryce Mitchell scored the second uh, twister submission in UFC history. Uh, got Sales with a twister, 420 of the first. Mitchell looked a lot more composed in this fight. He's been a bit wild in his previous UFC outings. Here he was very focused, got a really quick takedown, and immediately started working. Uh... Again, there's still a fair bit of maturation that has to go on as far as his overall game goes, but I, I've been I've been critical of him in the past, and I think with fair reason. But this was the type of performance that makes you pay more attention to someone beyond them being, you know, a wild kind of sloppy blood and guts fighter. At least for me, it was. At lightweight, Joe Selecki defeated Matt Wyman via unanimous decision. 230-26 is 130-27. Another fight that was absolutely not competitive. Matt Wyman shouldn't be in the UFC. That's just where that is at this point. Then on the early prelims, uh, Vina Jandiroba defeated Mallory Martin via rear naked choke. Uh, 116 of the second round. Martin had success on the feet, but uh, Jandiroba's grappling game was just better. She got the back. Uh, if you watch the finishing sequence here, Jendi Hoba does a good job of c perpetually adjusting her grip as she's going for the choke so that she never loses the choke attempt while adjusting to Martin trying to hand fight. It's a, it's a really nice thing. And kicking everything off, Mahmoud Muradov knocked out Trevor Smith 409 of the third round. With a beautiful punch. Um, Muradov, this wound up being a real sh I said last week that if Muradov wasn't ready for kind of the grappling-heavy, grindy potential of Smith, that he might get a rude, have a kind of a rude fight as far as that goes. Uh, no, this wound up being a total showcase for Muradov's abilities. He moved well, he jabbed constantly, he never really let his back get to the fence. And the fin he went to the body. The finishing sequence is beautiful. He throws a right to the body. He'd been landing that basically all fight. Follows up with a left hook. Smith tries to fire back with a left hook of his own that misses. But he leaves his head up in the air. And a crushing right from Muradov. Uh, just ejects his mouthpiece out of his mouth. He face plants. Uh, really, really wonderful knockout. 
Muradov to close that fight out. And that's, again, that's the whole card. Uh, again, I think I said last week on paper, good card on paper. Good card in practice, really. It dragged at the end, partially because of the way Rothwell versus Struve went down. And then, uh, again, I enjoyed Rosenstreich and Overeem for a five-round fight, but the event also, this one went long. Uh, just, and I don't mean that, like, it's part of that was unavoidable. Part of it, uh, I think the first fight started around four my time, and the whole fight, the whole, like, this was a seven-hour event, give or take. Uh, this thing didn't end until about 11. So this was, this was just a longer event. And you get those sometimes. Uh... So yeah, but there was definitely a loss of steam by the last couple of fights, again, for a variety of reasons. But, all in all, good event. Good event to come back to after a couple of weeks off, and a good lead-in to next week's event, because, oh boy. Uh, let's talk about UFC 245. Uh, next week, triple championship fight. Uh, again, one of the I gotta stop saying again. Maybe the best main card the UFC has put on all year, on paper. Might be very different in practice. And a solid overall card, in all honesty. The main event... Uh, I love these top two fights so much. I really do. For the welterweight title, champion Kamaru Usman against number one contender, former interim champion Colby Covington. I, oof. My second most anticipated fight on this card after the co-main, which we'll get to in a minute. This is a tough fight to kind of predict in a lot of ways. There's a large segment of the MMA fan base, be that in the media or just the fan base generally, that likes to dismiss Colby Covington because of his persona. Because he plays the heel, he's a deliberate uh, quasi-provocateur. And if you... The fact that he's been actively incentivized to do that is largely overlooked. I mean this in all seriousness. The fact that Colby took the deliberate, made the choices he made to present himself the way he does, is, if you believe his story, and I do, that prior to the Damian Maya fight, he was told that the UFC will not be re-signing him, whether win, lose, or draw, because they didn't like his style, they didn't, he wasn't a very exciting fighter, he wasn't drawing any interest, he, you know, any number of reasons. He then, again, adopted a more deliberately provocative personality simply as a means of keeping his job. Now, he, and again, he is actively incentivized to do this, A, by the promotion itself. The UFC inherently rewards bombastic personalities. There's, you have to have such a catas- uh, 
going to share this. I'm not entirely sure what type of negative attention you would have to garner for the UFC to be unwilling to continue to do business with you, so long as you have a high degree of attention. I mean, they're putting Conor McGregor in another main event, and the man just had a second, apparently somewhat credible accusation of sexual assault leveled at, leveled at him. Colby Covington goes out and says deliberately offensive things designed to rile you up because he has rightly, again, based on the incentive structure, concluded that it is better to be actively despised so long as people are paying attention than it is to be anything, than it is to be just a cog in the machine. And the way that the sport is covered by the media also incentivizes him to do this. He'll say a crazy thing, and it will then be reported because crazy things generate web traffic. Colby's latest provocative comment being used as the headline for a short article is going to draw people to click on it, to comment on it, to react to it somehow. So naturally, he's going to continue doing it, because the UFC rewards him for doing it, by virtue of just expanding his presence in the marketplace and becoming a valuable asset. The media structure is going to continue fueling fueling this by continuing to report on it the way that they do, because it helps generate what they're doing. And Colby's going to continue doing it because it benefits him. He's in a better position. He's earning more money doing this than when he wasn't. And the fact that he says a lot of things that a lot of people genuinely dislike, whether he actually believes it or not, again, I have no idea about the about his personal political beliefs or worldview. I imagine he's done the traditional professional wrestling thing. Take some aspect of who you are and crank it up to 11, 12, 13. And they, he is, again... M- somewhat unfairly maligned from a fighter perspective, meaning what he can do in the cage, because he says things that annoy people. And to his credit, if he can get his opponent to buy into that even a little bit, to dismiss him as a loudmouth gimmick rather than legitimately one of the best middleweight, welterweights, excuse me, welterweights in the world... It's working for him on a competitive level, too, not just a financial one. I think a lot of people are going to be overly dismissive of his chances of winning this fight. Now, I'm not, that's not to say that I'm picking him. But if you are just fully expecting him to get in there and not be able to have any success at all against Kamaru Usman... The fight itself might bear that out. Usman might come out and do something totally out of character and just starch him with one punch. Evidence suggests not, but it might happen. This sport is crazy. But if you're banking on that, I think you'll be in for a rude awakening. <laughs> the The way this fight's going to play out is... It's very, very interesting to me. 
there's a real, real fundamental dichotomy between these two, not even like personality-wise, although there is that, but how they fight. I, uh, because there was such a positive response to the uh, study I did on Volkanovsky and how he beat Jose Aldo, I'm going to do something similar in the lead-up to 245. I think, uh, like, either Tuesday and Wednesday or Wednesday and Thursday should be uh, two different episodes of... I think I'll just use continue to use the, like, deep-dive moniker, then, and instead of just... instead of being a look at a past fight and, a, like, an anal, like a breakdown of what tricks and what strategy was used, it's kind of like a skill study thing on these two guys. One for Colby, one for Usman. I'm still doing some of the tape study for Usman. I haven't really... I've got the, again, kind of like the outline and some of the scripts that I'm going to work for Colby down already. But Usman, again, I'm still starting to get into the tape and starting to really kind of hash out my thought process on that. The, there is a real, real fundamental difference from these two that if you just look at the some of the statistical breakdown of the two of them becomes very apparent. Colby Covington wants to fight at a really, really high pace. Whether he's going forward or backward, whether that's wrestling or striking, whether that's wrestling on the mat in the middle of the cage or fence fighting or clinching. I think the fundamental condition for Colby Covington's success is a high pace. This is especially true over his last few fights. He just wants things to keep happening at so rapid a pace at so and so at such a sustained interval that your body either physically breaks down and can't continue or your brain gets overwhelmed and fatigued with all the options he's presenting you and you give up. Uh, neither of these men are very big finishers. That needs to be which is not at all to say there's no chance of a finish here. It's simply to acknowledge that historically, I think Colby has like two or three in the UFC. So he debuted... Okay, Colby has four. He debuted with a TKO, followed that up with a submission, decision, lost to Worley Alves, submitted Jonathan Minier, TKO'd Max Griffin... And then has been all decisions since. Now, some of that is his increased level of competition. No slight on Max Griffin, but he went from you know uh, Brian, Bar you know go Griffin, Barbarina, Dong Yin Kim, Damian Maya, Rafael dos Anjos, Robbie Lawler, fighting guys like Maya, RDA, and Lawler. You're less likely to get finishes against those guys, no matter who you are. So his last finish was in 2016, and grand total of four in his entire UFC run. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. So what? No, no I'm correct. I ugh, don't know why I looked at that funny. And uh, then Usman has one, two. He has two finishes in the UFC. He won his season of The Ultimate Fighter with an arm triangle choke in 2015. Went on to have four decisions. Knocked out Sergio Moraes with a... He face-planted that guy with a right hand. Then 
back on the decision train up to and including his title win. So neither of neither of them are big finishers. But Covington wants a really, really high-paced fight. Usman is kind of the opposite. Usman doesn't really want... Now, that's not to say he is out of shape or that his, you know... Uh, this is not a reflection on his cardiovascular conditioning. It's a strategic decision more than anything else. Usman drastically favors control. Covington favors motion and activity. And those two things are very much at odds in this fight. Usman's going to want to spend a lot of time controlling Covington. Be that in the clinch, against the fence, on the ground, wherever it is, Usman likes to get you somewhere where he has a degree of control that he can maintain. Usually something like 50-50 position against the fence. That's where he spent a lot. That's where Woodley spent the majority of their fight. Was just pressed up against the fence. In something like 50-50, that's where you have one overhook and one underhook, and they have one overhook and one underhook. But Woodley could not get free. Usman's very, very good at controlling you there. And then finding places to land damage. He landed a lot of body shots on Tyron Woodley. A lot. And some of them were pretty significant. Or on the ground. This is something that both of these gentlemen have changed about their game as their time in the UFC has progressed. Usman doesn't pass as much now as he used to. That's not to say he doesn't. But a lot of, if you look at some of his earlier fights, he used to try to pass very quickly and would lose a position, have to start over. As is frequent of very, very talented wrestlers still kind of figuring out elements of the jiu-jitsu game. They're very good at getting a position, but there's certain either nuance or positions that they will go for because they believe that's what they're supposed to do and then uh, either mistime something or the motion that they use creates opportunities for scrambles. Something along those lines. So Usman, as time has progressed, tries to pass less. If he gets half guard, he will stay there. And he will only try to pass if he is certain not only that he can complete the pass, but that in doing so, he can maintain his control. I heard Luke Thomas mention this and uh, recently that, you know, if there's a recent trend in, a, a tactical trend in fighting in mixed martial arts, at the elite level, you see a lot of guys very reliant on, posi- on half positions rather than full positions. Be that having the back with only one hook in, half guard, 50-50 in the clinch, and just the ability to get a half position that you are exceptional at maintaining and then finding opportunities within that control position to do enough damage to clearly win the round. This is not a str- this is not a style or a strategy that lends itself to finishes. Usman again very good at this. Leon Edwards, very good at this. Covington is in a different way. And this is this speaks to his desire for activity versus control. But some of the fundamental principles uh, are still present in bits of Covington's game as well. 
and it's it is rare to find fighters like say Habib Nurmagomedov who does this as far as finding a half position a position where he feels confident in his ability to control you and then inflict damage Khabib does this and smashes people or gets them to give up a very very obvious submission attempt Khabib has a lot of finishes on his record some of them against very very high level opposition in the UFC and he's got a fair number of decisions too don't get me wrong some of that is a byproduct of the person he's fighting some of it's a byproduct of corners not stopping fights when they should Edson Barboza. He should not have been let out for that third round. There was just no point to it. All he did was take five more minutes of abuse. But you see a lot of guys, and you will continue to see a lot of guys, employ this generalized strategy of reasonable control position that they can maintain. Because there's no debate about... Kamaru Usman winning rounds. There's not a real debate around this. I don't think Tyron Woodley won a single round in their fight. Look up officially. I think officially he might have had one. No, officially he had none. Uh, there there might have been one round that uh, Dos Anjos won against him. Some judge gave Dos Anjos two rounds, which was just No. I like RDA, but no. <laughs> I watched that fight. Usman, again, good at control positions. Good about getting there and then stopping you. He wants to have you somewhere, control you, be in a position that he is winning. Half guard is a winning position for the guy on top the vast majority of the time especially if you're the guy on bottom isn't doing anything other than try to shrimp, try to move, get stifled, get punched, get hit in the body half a dozen times. Repeat. There's no debate about who wins that round. None. But that is the essential conflict that's going to manifest in this fight. On the one hand, you have the champion, Kamaru Usman, Never lost in the UFC. Great fighter. Fundamentally builds his game around control and the utter mitigation or cessation of his opponent's ability to move. He does not want you doing anything. Versus a fighter in Colby Covington who wants you doing stuff all the time. Now, that in and of itself is a relatively... How do I say this? That's almost a, a fundamental clash of styles. Most of the time, if one fighter has a dominant aspect of their game, certainly dominant relative to their opponent, that's how you start to see these, uh, again, these fundamental desires play out in different ways. If the fighter who wants you to be doing stuff all the time can't stop a double leg, well, hey, guess what? If the other guy who wants to control you can then control the positioning of the fight, you're kind of in a 
you're kind of screwed. Or if the reverse is true, if the guy who wants to control and slow things down can't ever secure a takedown or get a clinch for any significant period of time and has to work, 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 work. You see this with Damian Maya frequently. Uh, suddenly, they're the ones that are really, really on the back foot. If you like striking, but you want a slower-paced exchange, you want things to be more methodical, and your opponent wants to keep things at a high pace, but can't force you to engage on anything other than your own terms, then you, you tend to be more successful. The, the aspect of this fight that provides more intrigue to this fundamental clash of a desire for pace and motion and constant, constant, constant action versus control is that they both tend to achieve them through the same means, that being wrestling. Now, there's a giant discrepancy in Colby Covington's... where Colby does his damage, where he does his work. Colby can absolutely wrestle, but if you look at how many strikes he tends to land on the ground or in the clinch even, it's not that much. It tends to be a... that's not where he does the bulk of his work. Uh, so while he when he wrestles, he tends to just wrestle and get you against the fence, get you down, get a go-behind, get a mat return, and just make you work to tire you out, to get you thinking about wrestling. And then his pace kicks in on the feet when he's just constantly, constantly, constantly kicking and jabbing and throwing stuff at you and making you move. And then he's back on your hips, and just, it never ends. But he, he utilizes his wrestling very well to kind of open up the other elements of his game. Kamar Usman establishes his control with his wrestling, be that in the clinch against the fence, when you're fence wrestling, or on the mat. And that, I think, poses the biggest danger to Kamaru Usman. While Usman has demonstrated to have a, some degree of punching power, he's not a very sophisticated striker as of yet. And he's not a very high-volume striker. Now, again, that's, that is not to say that he this is a failing of his. Some of it might purely be a tactical choice. Not everyone's going to throw a hundred punches around. Not, not everyone needs to. But it is a very, very real observation. And if he's... If he's unable to force Colby into prolonged, more static wrestling positions, he's going to have some real problems in this fight. Uh, there are a couple of other points that I think are, val are wor worth consideration here. One is that Kamaru Usman in the UFC has never been taken down. Just straight up never. 100% takedown, <laughs> takedown defense. Now, some of that is how infrequently people have tried, either because he never just denies them the opportunity to, or they decide it's not worth the effort. But, yeah, no one has taken him down. What he looks like off of his back is a very... is a, a giant unknown. We, He might be exceptional, he might be really good at regaining his feet, he might be like a turtle. Uh... I find that I find that unlikely given his general level of accomplishment, but crazier things. Uh, 
he also doesn't... We have not seen him in prolonged wrestling exchanges. When he fought Tyron Woodley, it was a lot of static. And when I say static, I mean, like, immobile. He'd get a control... He'd get a position against the fence. He'd get a position on the ground. And it would take Tyron a while to kind of either muster the energy or find an, or find an opening or some bit of motion to to allow him to start moving again. We haven't seen Usman in a lot of perpetual motion. And by contrast, we have seen Covington in a lot of perpetual motion. We haven't seen Covington fight another really good wrestler in a while. Now, Rafael dos Anjos got him down a couple of times. Wasn't able to do a tremendous amount with it, but... And... Again, Dos Anjos is a very, very good fighter. He is also, however, not the wrestler that Kamaru Usman is. Uh, that said, Dos Anjos did tend to set those up by value of their surprise rather than... Uh, so he, he was able to surprise Covington with them rather than just have great wrestling setups, although not to say they're bad. You know Usman's going to try to take you down. There's not a lot of mystery there. So that remains to be seen. Uh, I really do worry about Usman's chances if he's not able to establish some kind of static control position. The more this fight takes place on the feet generally, the more it favors Colby Covington. It, it bears repeating, when he fought Robbie Lawler, Colby Covington threw, I believe was credited officially with 500 or thereabouts significant strike attempts. Say nothing of and what constitutes a significant strike is not always the most consistently thing that so consistently established thing. So that's not necessarily even including all the jabs he threw. I really can't stress enough to all of you out there. If that if that were if uh, if Covington's striking were evenly distributed across all five rounds, it wasn't, mind you. But if it were, that's a hundred strikes per round. That breaks down to 20 strikes per minute. I defy you to get on a heavy bag and keep that pace up. I know I can't. I've tried. <laughs> it, it is utterly beyond me at the moment. Um, you out there might be... You know, if, I mean, if Leo Santa Cruz is listening, then sure, he can do that in his sleep. But uh, <laughs> to the majority of us, that's an insane pace. And in Covington's case, they were not evenly distributed. Covington fired and landed more each successive round in the Lawler fight. He accelerated all fight. Uh, just crazy. But Kamaru Usman does not do a tremendous amount of work on the feet at distance. The majority of his work is either in the clinch or on the ground. When he Once he's established a control position. The more this fight's at distance, the more it favors Covington. The more this fight is is action, is just doing stuff constantly, the more it favors Covington. And I think the reverse is, it's probably fair to speculate that the reverse of that is true. The less motion there is, the more this is static, the more it favors Kamaru Usman. That seem that is what is generally his condition for success thus far. And the fact that both men try to implement these strategies, these very, very diametrically opposed strategies, utilizing the same 
fundamental skill, that being wrestling in this case, that both men excelled at. Well, yeah. I'm going to be really elitist about this and go ahead and say it this way. Uh, both men were very successful collegiate wrestlers. I do not believe either of them went on to international wrestling. Uh, for those wrestling nerds out there, actually, I think there's a video on YouTube of Kamaru Usman at the Olympic Training Center wrestling with Kale Sanderson. Uh, I believe he's credited as Marty Usman, because that's what he was going by at the time in that video. So if you can find it, if it's still there, it's it's interesting. Um, in no small part because eh, there's a few things. One, Kale Sanderson is a much larger man than Usman. Two, Sanderson kind of has his way with him. Sanderson is a much better wrestler. Uh, a, lo a lot of our perspective in MMA is very, very limited when it comes to you know, how good a wrestler is when they transition to the sport. There's not a lot of, not to say none, there's not a lot of wrestler, internationally successful wrestlers. There are some. But if you look at the... I imagine if you were to look at the pool of international wrestlers who make the transition to MMA, it's a smaller percentage than the... Uh, than, the, than a percentage of, say, the pool of, of collegiate wrestlers in the United States who then make the transition to mixed martial arts. And that's not a knock, necessarily, mind you. It, it, wrestling at the international level is unbelievably difficult. That might be the most... That is one of the most difficult sports to excel in at that level because everybody wrestles. Pretty much every country that participates in the Olympics sends wrestlers. There are certain places... Uh, there's actually a really interesting... I forget which one of the videos it is, but the YouTube channel Mixed Molly Whoppery has a series of videos on Dagestan, that, uh, the, Dag the Republic of Dagestan, which is part of the Russian Federation, and the... Uh, just the the wrestlers that come out of that small part of the world. There's a lot of wrestlers from that from Dagestan in particular, that if they don't make the Russian international team, will petition will then wind up trying to represent a neighboring nation, something like Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan. Uh, there's another one right there that frequently does that. I can't remember which country it is. One of the other stands. Um, <laughs> forgive my... Uh, it might be Turkmenistan. I can't remember. A lot of small countries in the breakup of the Soviet Union. I, <laughs> I remember a lot of them, but I don't remember all of them. I apologize. But they will... Uh, so they, they will try to represent those uh, some of these other countries internationally and still do quite well. But... Uh, Point being, the the participation rate worldwide for wrestling is very high. There's always, you know, a couple of Cuban wrestlers. There's always, uh, you know, Iranian wrestlers. There's even again smaller countries that don't field a, a lot of sports. You know, there's Mongolian wrestlers. I just mentioned you, know, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. They've got wrestlers at the international level. All of them. India, Pakistan, all of them. 
They've all got wrestlers. It is very, very difficult to wrestle at the international level. It, it insanely difficult. So the fact that someone like Kale Sanderson, undefeated Division One champion for his entire collegiate wrestling career, Olympic gold medalist, and now coaches one of the most insane wrestling dynasties at Penn State at the moment. You see the difference in level between Kamaru Usman, a really, really good collegiate wrestler, and someone who goes on to succeed at the highest level. So, you can, again, I, you can find that on, I think it was on YouTube, if you're interested in watching the two of them have a little bit of a rest. It's not even a full-blown match, they're just kind of, you know, working, uh, working out a little bit. And whether or not Usman can force those kind of, you know, static wrestling positions on Covington is everything for him. Covington needs to avoid them in some pretty serious ways. But in some, it might be easier to avoid them. It might be easier for Covington to avoid them than it is for Usman to force them. And even if they wind up in some wrestling positions, you know, Covington can wrestle. It's going to be whether or not Usman can actually establish control. Because if Covington can force active wrestling exchanges where they're constantly up and down and up and down and up and down and Matt return go behind even if he's on a even if he gets taken down on occasion if he's able to get back up and force the motion to continue that's what he wants <laughs> this is a he, his chances in this fight are being uh, again dramatically undersold by a lot of people because they don't like him Fine, don't like him. I'm not here to tell you to be a fan of the guy. But put aside whatever you think about someone personally and just look at what they can do in the cage if you want to have a sober assessment of their chances in any given fight. As far as my pick goes, after everything I just said, you might I might have talked myself into picking Covington. Oh, I don't know. I really don't know. You know what? Okay. I'm going to... I'm going to... I'm not going to make this pick with any sort of... Uh, I am not certain about this. I'm going to lean towards Usman. And at the moment, my my opinion is probably going to change several times on this one as the week goes on. But here's where I think he's going to be... Here's where I think he's going to have the most chance of success. And where I think... If you're going to lean towards him, and I am, I think it's going to be for this reason. I think Covington, if they do tie up, and I imagine there's a very high probability that over the course of this fight, they're going to get into the clinch at some point. If they just straight up... If this is just a... I hate to say sloppy, but if this is just two wrestlers kickboxing for five rounds, I will be shocked. Not because that's never happened before, but because both men, at various points for various reasons, want to wrestle. 
And I think once they do get into those positions, Usman is probably going to find ways of controlling Covington and slowing everything down to the pace he wants. I do not think this is an easy fight for either man. That wasn't already obvious. I'm going to lean Usman right now, but A, my I'm probably going to change my mind on that at least once or twice over the course of the week. And I I think you will be you're making a dramatic misread of Covington's skill set if you're just trying to dismiss him because you dislike his persona. That man can absolutely fight with the best of them. And this is a very, very competitive, very, very compelling fight. Which is also true of the co-main event. This is my this is the fight I am most excited for on this card. Max Holloway. Uh, the man at 145. Hasn't lost in that weight class in, what, 12 fights? I had to look this up now because I can't remember off the top of my head. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, excuse me, 14. 14 wins in a row at featherweight. The only loss in his last 15 fights was earlier this year when he bumped up to lightweight to try to become the interim champion and lost to Dustin Poirier in not my fight of the year right now, but certainly one of the fights of the year. Uh, he rebounded from that earlier by this year by beating Frankie Edgar. So 14 fights in a row at featherweight. Two wins over Aldo. Two finishes over Aldo. Uh, uh, you know, I wish I had a better grasp of Max Holloway's game. I've watched all of his fights in the UFC. I remember his debut fight. Because I said at the time... He, he gave Poirier trouble on the feet until Poirier kind of was able to get things to the ground, and that's where he where he was clearly better. But I, I've watched all of his fights in the UFC, several of them multiple times. I've done tape study on this guy, and I still don't feel like I have a really like solid grasp of his game. There, I can talk in broad strokes about his game, sure. But you know the the real kind of the the foundations, the underlying mechanisms. I I don't feel like I've got the best grasp in the world of of that. In no small part, because Max Holloway alters his game so well. Max is very very good about picking and choosing which elements of his game go in which places, and in which order in some cases, relative to his opponent. And he reads so well. Max Holloway's ability to adapt and adjust in real time, not just between rounds, and adjusting between rounds even can be a difficult thing for high-level fighters to do. Max Holloway adjusts minute to minute in the middle of a round. It is unbelievably incredible that he's able to do that. Only the very best fighters, and when I say the very, like, less than 1% of 1% of fighters 
are able to adjust in significant ways in real time in the middle of a round. That is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And he does it very well. Max Holloway is fighting the clear-cut number one contender, Alexander Volkanovsky. Uh, Volkanovsky was actually the backup for Holloway versus Edgar. Uh, he was there and weighed in, so he could have substituted for either guy if something happened to one of them for that fight. Volkanovsky on a 17-fight winning streak overall. Hang on. 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, 17 fights in a row. Uh, six of those in the UFC. Seven. Seven of those in the UFC. My apologies, Alex, <laughs> Mr. Volkanovsky. Not mean to dissuade you. Seven of those in the UFC. His last two wins in Dece- December 29th of 18, he knocks out Chad Mendez. May 11th of 19, he definitively beats Jose Aldo via unanimous decision. I think everyone had that fight 30-27 for Volkanovski. That was Aldo's first loss in a three-round fight in like 10 years. A ridiculous accomplishment. In fact, cheap plug, if you haven't listened to my deep dive podcast on how Alexander Volkanovski beat Jose Aldo... If you want a more detailed breakdown of that fight in particular, you can listen to that. It's about, uh, it's less than an hour long. 38 or 48 minutes, I can't remember which. So, you can find that. Please, if you haven't already listened to it, give it a listen. I put a lot of effort into that. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Volkanovski, unbeaten in the UFC, long winning streak. You know, if he beats, if if he wins, and he might, he's very, very good. But if he, in three consecutive fights, finishes Chad Mendes, beats Jose Aldo, and beats Max Holloway, whew, that is, I won't say an unprecedented three-fight three stretch, but that is, that is something. To beat those three guys in a row would be absolutely something else. As for the fight itself... <laughs> Uh, I am very, very, very interested in this fight. I almost wish I didn't have to talk about it or type during it. I could just watch this fight. I'm going to rewatch it, I'm almost certain. Both men have exceptional cardio. Both men are good strikers. I think Max is a little bit... I don't want to say better, because that's such a bizarre way to frame that. Max is more of a volume striker than Volkanovski. And Max ten Max is the more I can't even what do I say? I can't say the more diverse striker, because they're both very diverse. Max is more demonstrated long term success in the striking area than Volkanovski has. Max is exceptionally good at finding small weak points in your defense and then exploiting them relentlessly until you break. 
Max is kind of like water in that respect. If there is anything approximating a hold, <laughs> he will find it, and he will use it, and he will wear it down until the entire structure around it breaks. Volkanovsky is a more generally diverse fighter. He is the better wrestler. I think I'm... I don't think that's too much of a stretch to say. Not to say Max can't wrestle, but Volkanovsky uses his wrestling more. There are a couple of things that I think for either fighter to be successful, they have to deal with with the other. With Max Holloway, he... This might sound really odd, but hear me out. He has to deal with the lead leg kicking of Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky doesn't finish anyone with his lead leg, really. But he uses it a lot. He uses it as a distance tool. He uses it to land leg kicks. He uses it to keep your defense occupied. And he uses it to score points. A lot of his game, not all of it, but a lot of it, builds around some of the stuff he establishes with his lead leg kicking game. And it doesn't get talked about a lot because it's not very often a tool or in the finish, if he finishes a fight. Uh, a lot more gets made about, again, his wrestling, his ground and pound, which is ferocious, his clinch game, his physical strength, all of which are incredibly impressive, and believe me, you, don't, you do have to deal with them as well. But I think if you're looking for again, a, a tool that he uses to kind of establish and build off of. I think his lead leg work is something that he uses very much as, that he uses a lot and if you're Max Holloway, I think you have to find a way to deal with that. Not because it's dangerous in and of itself, but because of what it represents for the rest of his game. If you're Max Holloway, you have to do a couple of things. You have uh, so you have to do that. If you're Volkanovski, you have to be the one going forward. Uh, Volkanovski is a pressure fighter. That's what he does. If he's the one backing up in front of Max Holloway, that's, that is a very bad indicator for him. He has to find a way to consistently get Max to be willing to cede ground. Uh... The, the longer the distance for this fight, the more it favors Holloway. Volkanovski has ways of extending his reach beyond what it is. Because Again, if you just look at him, he kind of jokes that he's a hobbit. Despite the fact that the man used to play rugby and weighed, you know, 250, nearly... Like, he was a big guy when he played rugby. But, I mean, he jokingly referred to his fight with Chad Mendes as the Battle of the Hobbits because they're both relatively short and you know, a little bit uh, stockier in the arms. Uh, I think Volkanovski had a reach advantage technically in that fight, but Holloway, taller, longer. Volkanovski compensates for some of his shorter uh, wingspan with his lead leg work and some really deceptively quick feet and motion to close distance. He's also not at all adverse to uh, like step-through, shifting punches, which have troubled Max Holloway on occasion. For a guy who does as much, who is as ambidextrous as a striker as Holloway is, guys who shift on him when they punch have found his chin. 
I think in no small part because he doesn't really expect it. Uh, that's the big punch that Dustin Poirier landed on him. He's Poirier fights Southpaw. He stepped through with a left. Max shifted to Poirier's right to avoid it. Didn't get far enough away, and the right hook that followed... Uh, he was seeing stars, I guarantee that, after that punch landed. Now, that punch became less successful as the fight kind of wore on, but Ortega clipped him with a similar style punch. And when you, when you rely as much on your reads as Max Holloway does, the ability to throw something completely unexpected at you is is a dangerous thing. I mean, Israel Adesanya got surprised by a head kick from Kelvin Gastelum, and that head kick very nearly cost Adesanya that fight. <laughs> and Adesanya, unbelievable fighter. Unbelievable defensive fighter. Great at reading you. Kelvin Gastelum doesn't throw a lot of head kicks. So when he did, it surprised him. If you surprise a read-based fighter with something they don't see or aren't expecting, you can find success there. Volkanovski will shift on his punches, too. He's not... He doesn't do it a lot, but he does do it. And I think if Max Holloway is not prepared for that, it could very well surprise him. Uh, the clinch is going to be an interesting thing. The whole the wrestling dynamic in this fight in general is going to be very, very interesting. Max Holloway has very good takedown defense. Uh, he's very, especially once you get towards like single legging him, he's very good about pushing down on you about limp-legging, about threatening you with uh, some kind of front headlock sequence. Uh, when he fought Dustin Poirier, he almost got Poirier in an anaconda choke. And Dustin Poirier is a very good grappler. So you can't be lazy about it when you're shooting on him. What takes place against the fence will be very... In That's something I think Holloway has to avoid, is his back on the fence. If Volkanovski ever gets him there... He might be stuck there for a bit. Volkanovski is very, very physically strong. And Holloway has struggled in, in scenarios against physically stronger opposition. That's one of the things that I think helped Poirier beat him. There's a lot of reasons Poirier beat him. But the, the, the punching power being obviously like one of the big ones among them. But the physical strength, when he got Holloway to the fence... Because there's periods of that fight in the fourth and fifth round that uh, Dustin Poirier gets in the clinch and gets Max Holloway to the fence and kind of looks for takedowns or just slows, just tries to slow down the offensive onslaught of Max Holloway and does so to his credit. And the the physical strength disparity I think played into some of that. Whether or not Volkanovski has the same fit, raw physical strength advantage over Holloway that Poirier did is a is a real question. Uh, because, you know, Poirier is a, very well documented in this case, a big, strong lightweight. Uh, Volkanovski is a strong featherweight. Uh, he outmuscled Jose Aldo in a few of the positions in their fight, and Jose Aldo, not a weak man. <laughs> so that's, that is something that I, I find very interesting. As far as picking who's going to win, the reality is I I just I can't pick against Max Holloway. 
Not because this is an easy fight. Not because that's an easy thing for me to say. It's not. But, and I do believe Alexander Volkanovsky represents the biggest threat to Holloway at 145. Uh, I, I think the way he fights, his pressure base, his motor. Volkanovsky is a guy who can... Uh, Holloway wears a lot of guys down who just aren't physically in condition to go with him. Volkanovsky will be. The ability to transition between striking and wrestling... There's a lot here that is a very, very real threat to Max Holloway. And I will not be surprised if Volkanovski wins. Uh, I'm picking Holloway, I'm leaning towards Holloway, but... Discount Alexander Volkanovski at your own peril. Alright, next up, as far as the... uh, We have another title, our third title fight. UFC women's bantamweight and featherweight champion Amanda Nunes will be fighting Jermaine Durandamy, defending her bantamweight title. This is a rematch. Uh, these two fought... Back in 2013, and... Jermaine... Uh, excuse me. Amanda Nunes defeated Durandamy via TKO elbows on the ground in about four minutes. She took her down, got a dominant position, and just elbowed the crap out of her. <laughs> Duh. Wasn't a terribly competitive fight. Now, that might make you question whether or not the rematch will be competitive. And, look, I am picking Amanda Nunes here. There are a couple of things she has to be mindful of. Jermaine Durandamy is a fairly devastating striker. And if Amanda Nunes decides she wants to do this fight entirely on the feet, because Amanda Nunes has huge power. Like, just crushing power. (laughs) And that's certainly not to be underestimated. And she's a... Her technique is not bad. Let Let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that her technique is not bad by any reasonable stretch of the imagination. But Jermaine Durandamy is the superior technician. The longer this fight remains on the feet, the more chances Jermaine Durandamy has. If Nunes tries to just replicate what she did in their first fight, she has a she is given her power and just kind of general technical ability on the feet. Nunes can win this fight on the feet. The skill discrepancy on the mat is heavily in her favor. And she would be wise to try and get the fight on the ground as quickly as is prudent. You don't want to be, you don't want to overly telegraph that kind of a shot, but hanging around on the feet with Jermaine Durandamy for prolonged periods of time, again, is just a little bit on the imprudent side. But picking Nunes, I I don't have anything deep to say about that fight. (laughs) Um, we have two bantamweight fights to close out the main card. Marlon Marais, former title challenger, coming off of that loss to Henry Cejudo. Boy, that was a back-breaking loss in a lot of ways. Marais had built up a lot of momentum going into that fight. And has an unbelievable first round. <laughs> I mean, really unbelievable. He shut Henry Cejudo down thoroughly. I think I gave him that round 10-8. I don't think Cejudo did anything of relevance that entire round. 
Second round, though, Cejudo starts getting into middle boxing distance, and Moraes doesn't really have an answer for it, and that spells his doom. He is welcoming former featherweight champion Jose Aldo to 135. Aldo coming off of that loss to Volkanovski again. That was his first loss in a three-round fight since 2005. Good grief, 14 years. That man has lost, has only lost two three-round fights in his entire life. That is nuts. That is just nuts. Anyway, he's trying his hand at bantamweight. Um, if you've seen some of the photos of him doing this weight cut, uh, I don't know, man. I, look, I have a lot of very, very fond memories of Jose Aldo fights. Uh, him wrecking people in WEC. I think a lot of his UFC fights get an undue, get an unfair reputation because everyone expected him to keep smashing people in five minutes, uh, which just is not reasonable. Don't get me wrong. Some of them, okay, fine. They were just kind of there. But uh, I have a lot of affection as a fan for Jose Aldo's fights. I am not sure. This is a really tough fight. Both men have good kicking games. Moraes is more of a kicker than Jose Aldo is recently. Aldo hasn't abandoned his kicking game necessarily. I, I certainly don't mean to phrase it like that. But... He has not kicked a whole lot in his last several fights. Whereas Moraes does the bulk of his work kicking. Like His kicks are his primary offensive weapon. Not his only one, but his primary one. And Jose Aldo's primary condition for success is generally his ability to his defense. His ability to slip or block or draw something out and then counter you. And that's certainly a possibility against a prim against primarily a kicker like Moraes, but it does complicate things. You know, I don't like the weight cut for Aldo. I hate picking against Jose Aldo, man. It always feels weird. I've done it on occasion. Both of the both of the Holloway fights, I picked Holloway. I think I picked him to beat Volkanovski. But I did say, if I recall correctly, I said Volkanovski had a real chance in that fight. I'm going to pick Moraes here. Oof. I, again, I don't like picking against Jose Aldo. But the weight cut, is that's a big thing. If Aldo is able to punish Moraes' kicking game, if every time Moraes kicks, he checks it, blocks it, slips it, closes distance, and is able to land some punches... I don't mean to say at all that he can't win. But I'm going to lean towards Moraes. And then kicking off the main card, also at bantamweight, Peter Yan will fight Uriah Faber. Um, as tempting as it is to slip into gimmickry here and say that this is just senior abuse, I'm going to approach this fight a bit more... I'm going to try and set that aside. Even setting aside kind of my long-standing antipathy towards Uriah Faber, I don't really see a lot of ways for him to win this fight. Faber came back from a hiatus-slash-retirement and beat Ricky Simone earlier this year. 
Now, this was facilitated by and large by Ricky Simone's utter lack of head movement and just kind of being present for Faber's overhand right, which is the only punch Faber has. Faber doesn't do much with his lead hand. He never has. He's kind of, he's got, you know, the right, and only in a couple of different ways. He's, he's not a very tricky striker in that respect. And Peter Yan brings some of, has, if you want to look up how to fuse genuine boxing technique in terms of trunk movement, head movement, slipping and countering with mixed martial arts sensibilities and considerations for it being a different sport, look at Peter Yan, because he gets it. He has an ability to blend those two things together very, very well. The longer this stays on the feet, the more it favors Jan. Uh, Faber just is at a severe skills disadvantage when it comes to the striking in this fight. Where things might get interesting is if Faber's able to force wrestling and scrambles constantly, because Jan has shown an ability to deal with that against a level of fighter not Uriah Faber. Uh, Faber's whole game has largely been built around, if not scram- uh, uh, scrambles, basically. <laughs> Just kind of higher-paced, wrestle you down, make you make mistakes, get around to your back, uh, stuff like that. <clears throat> Pardon me. And if he's able to kind of force that onto Jan, that will be interesting to see him try to deal with that. But as far as picking goes... I, I cannot pick Uriah Faber to win this fight. I've been on the Peter Yan bandwagon for a while. That includes, like, his last three fights in uh, ACB that I watched. Because I I watched his one loss. The split decision to Magomed Magomedov. But I thought he won. He went on to... He won another fight, then rematched Magomedov and beat him decisively. Yeah, I, I watched, like, his last three or four fights in ACB. I've watched his UFC fights. I, I'm kind of, again, to the extent that I get on a bandwagon, I'm a, I'm a big believer in Peter Jan's abilities. And that is not at all to say Uriah Faber is incapable of winning this fight. If Jan's not properly prepared for the right hand, or if he misreads it at some point, Faber has a bit of power, and Faber can still... You know, try to out-wrestle you mostly is what uh, where his game kind of comes to life. But Faber also got caught and kind of wobbled by Simone, and Jan is a much slicker striker than Ricky Simone. So, uh, picking Jan, but... Picking Jan pretty handily. Again, that's not at all to say Faber is completely and utterly incapable of winning this fight. It is to say I favor Jan. Pretty consistently. Alright, that's the main card. That is a great main card. Spent a lot of time talking about it today. <laughs> Alright, as for the prelims, there's a welterweight fight between Jeff Neal and Mike Perry. That is a solid fight. Uh, Jeff Neal undefeated in the UFC, 4-0 on a six-fight winning streak overall. Yeah, six fights. Coming off a win over Nico Price. Uh, Mike Perry is Mike Perry. <laughs> Uh, coming off of a split decision loss to Vicente Luque, 
I am shocked he's back that soon. That was in August of this year. His nose was... If you have not seen Mike Perry's nose after that fight, that's one of the worst broken noses I've ever seen. Uh, I mean... Uh, God. <laughs> that, again, seriously, horribly broken nose. I'm surprised he's medically eligible to fight again this soon. That that might be a, a mistake. Jeff Neal is the more polished striker. Mike Perry's a wild man, but we'll get after the fight. Uh, I'm going to lean towards Neal, but that could be a wild one. Uh, Ketlin Vieja's back. Ketlin Vieja, for those of you who may not remember, undefeated, 10-0, and 0, uh, 3-4-0 and in the UFC. Was thought to be, you know, uh, someone potentially in line to challenge for the belt. Uh, she was supposed to fight Jermaine Durandamy at one point. Uh, unfortunately, she pulled out of a fight in 2018 with a knee injury, and this is her first fight back. So it's been a little over a year. And she is fighting Irina Aldana. Um, Aldana has gone... 4-2? and two? Four and three in the UFC, I think. Yeah, four and three. She's coming off a win over Vanessa Mello. That was kind of a gimme, <laughs> in all honesty, for that fight. And I thought she did. And I thought she could have gotten the decision against Raquel Pennington. I certainly wouldn't have complained about it if it had gone her way. Just put it that way. That's a pretty good fight. Uh, the layoff. Aldana has struggled against some of what Vieja does, though. I am going to go with Vieja, but... Uh, not a bad fight. Um, there will be a middleweight fight between Omari Akhmedov and Ian Heinish. It's not a bad fight. Um, Akhmedov has yet to lose at middleweight. He fought to a draw with Marvin Vittori and has beaten Tim Bosch and Zach Cummings. Uh, he hasn't lost since 2016, actually, when he lost to Eliezer Zaleski Dos Santos. Uh, whereas Highness just had his uh, kind of hype train derailed by Derek Brunson. Unfortunate for him, he was on a good run. And also unfortunate because... <sighs> it's unfortunate when there's a lack of divisional turnover, just kind of generally. But if you can't win the fights, you can't win the fights. I'm going to go with Heinish there. Akhmedov tends to gas, and Heinish pushes a good pace. Uh, welterweight fight between Matt Brown and Ben Saunders. Uh, that's just too long, mean <laughs> guys getting after it. Uh, look, Ben Saunders has won one fight in his last six fights, and that was over Jake Ellenberger. Uh, Matt Brown, I believe he's returning from what well, was technically retirement. He said he was going to retire after the Sanchez fight. Uh, he announced he was coming back last year that f to fight Carlos Condit. That fell out after he tore his ACL. Um, I mean, I, look, I'm picking Matt Brown. Like these two are going to get close. They're going to elbow the crap out of each other in the clinch. But I don't, I don't think Saunders has what it takes to be in the UFC anymore. I mean, I think that about Diego Sanchez too, and he's. Signed a multi-fight extension. God. Yeah. 
Alright, as for the early fight, early prelims, these uh, Fight Pass or ESPN Plus, I think. Um, Chase Hooper and Daniel Tamer are scheduled to fight. Daniel Tamer, unfortunately the less talented of the two Tamer brothers. Uh, David is uh, a much more, much more demonstratedly successful fighter. I'm going to go with Tamer here because Hooper is making his debut. Uh, flyweight fight. Curtain jerk, not quite curtain jerking, but buried on the early prelims. Brandon Moreno, who the UFC brought back for the Mexico card. And he then fought to a draw that he probably shouldn't have got. Uh, he will fight Kai Cara France, who's on a really long winning streak, including being 3-0 and in the UFC. I'm going with Cara France here. He's, he's pretty legit. Not to say Moreno is a scrub, but... I like Cara France. Um, Jessica I will fight Viviani Araujo. Jessica I, last seen being knocked out by Valentina Shevchenko. Oh, God. Liz Carmouche loses to Valentina Shevchenko, cut by the UFC. That was announced this week. Jessica I goes from title fight at UFC 238 to second fight on the card. The UFC matchmaker just sees flyweight and doesn't care if it's women or men. It's it's the same. If you're not in the title fight, you're not on the main card. Uh, I'm going to pick Araujo there just out of spite. <laughs> That's all that is. I just... I, I I don't pick Jessica I to win fights. She That's not to say she's terrible, but I don't pick her to win fights. Kicking off everything will be a middleweight fight between Oscar Pijota and... Whoa. I need to know where this guy's from <laughs> to know how to pronounce this. I think he's... Bra I'm going to guess he's Brazilian. He is American. Okay. Fair enough. There's some weird American names. Let's see, fight out of... Ah, Hawaii. Okay. If that's Hawaiian, it is... Punahele Soriano. Um, yeah, because you pronounce all the vowels in Hawaiian. So, Punahele Soriano. Okay. Undefeated, 6-0. Pejota is 11-2-1. Uh, two losses in the UFC. He, had a, he debuted, got two wins, lost twice to Gerald Mershard and Rodolfo Vieja. Uh, I'm actually going to pick Soriano. I should pick Pejota. I really should. I mean, there's no reason to pick Soriano. Hmm. Yeah, I'll pick Pijota, but uh, don't be Soriano might pull that off, despite being the debutante to the more veteran fighter. But uh, yeah, that will be UFC 245. I am excited. I cannot wait. That is a it's a solid card. Great, great main card. And those top two fights are just, ooh, baby. Those are money fights. I am very much looking forward to those. So if you would like to, uh, come Saturday, I will be I will be doing live coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. So stop by over there, say hello if you're so inclined. Uh, it's always appreciated. This is a pretty big event. I anticipate there'll be something of a turnout. So feel free to hang out in the comments section or just lurk and read along. I'm... I'm happy either way. I'm happy that you're reading. 
That's really the long and the short of it. Okay, let's move on to news. Okay, the big news of the week. Um, Brian Ortega was supposed to fight the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung in the main event of the last card of the year in Busan, South Korea, the 21st of December. Uh, Ortega is out. He tore his ACL. Sucks. Please get better soon. And what ha- This is so weird. Stepping in to replace him is Frankie Edgar. Now, this might seem odd in no small part because Frankie Edgar already has a fight lined up for February against Corey Sandhagen at bantamweight. That fight is apparently still on. Um, I'm going to go ahead and make this prediction. It won't be after that fight, whether Frankie Edgar wins or loses. If Frankie Edgar was going to try and make a run at bantamweight, he really... The man hasn't cut to... It's been kind of known for a while that if Edgar were serious about making a weight cut, his frame is more suited for bantamweight than for either lightweight or featherweight. The fact that he found as much success as he did in both divisions is a testament to the man's ability. I am not at all trying to downplay Frankie Edgar's fighting capabilities. The man is exceptional. He's a legend. But if you're going to make that move down... (laughs) You really should be focusing on Corey Sandhagen. Corey Sandhagen is not here to help you launch a career renaissance at bantamweight. He's... And again, the fight is still signed. I don't expect it to be. For a very specific reason. This was pointed out by Luke Thomas. I'm going to reiterate it. Look at the last three opponents for Chan Sung Jung. He comes back from his military service because he's South Korean, and in two years is mandatory. Comes back, knocks out Dennis Bermudez. If you, um, if Frankie is knocked out, which has only happened to him once, in all fairness, he would not be medically eligible to compete in February. I'm fairly sure about that. Fought after that, Jung fought um, Yair Rodriguez. And lost. Fight he should have won. <laughs> Apart from that last kind of Hail Mary elbow from Rodriguez. But look at the damage from the, that those two guys suffered. They both went to the hospital. Rodriguez was out for a long... I mean, Jung came back before Rodriguez did. Like he went, Those two went through with a meat grinder together. Then he fights Hinato Moicano. Knocks him out. I find the notion that Frankie Edgar is going to take this fight and come away, win, lose, or draw, in a physical condition to then turn around in February down at bantamweight and fight Corey Sandhagen, an incredibly dubious one. I I do not think that's going to happen. I will say this as well. If it does, that is insane. (laughs) Uh, if Frankie Edgar, I'm repeating a sentiment largely expressed by others here, but I wish to reiterate it because it's true. If Frankie Edgar beats Chan Sung Jung, is healthy enough to then turn around fight, and if he beats Corey Sandhagen down at bantamweight, that's a that's a ridiculous thing to pull off. 
at 38, 39, whatever Frankie is, that would be an that would be a very very. That, that's a crazy thing if he's able to pull it off. Uh, and I. That fight with uh, Chan Sung Jung. The more I think about it, the more I do not like Frankie's chances. Uh, he can win. I mean, discount Frankie Edgar in any given fight at your own peril. I think the only time I basically said, yeah, Frankie's... Yeah, I felt really, really confident picking against Frankie Edgar was when he fought Max Holloway. And even then I said, sure, you know, discount Frankie Edgar at your own peril. <laughs> but... That's that's one again. I I do not like Edgar's chances, and it I'm gonna say it now. It sucks for Corey Sandhagen, who was poised to have the biggest fight of his career. Frankie Edgar's a known quantity. That again, legend. And fighting that guy, especially if you beat Frankie Edgar, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, look at the guys who have beaten Frankie recently. It's like Max Holloway, Brian Ortega. That's kind of it. <laughs> uh, I want to double check that. Yeah. The only guys to have beaten Frankie Edgar... I mean, Frankie doesn't lose often anyway. The only Here's the only people that have beaten Frankie Edgar in his entire career. Gray Maynard, Benson Henderson, Jose Aldo, Brian Ortega, Max Holloway. That's it. At featherweight, he has only lost to Jose Aldo, Brian Ortega, and Max Holloway. And of those, he's only been finished the one time, that by Ortega. <laughs> God, Frankie's insane. And, for the record, Frankie probably should have won that rematch with Benson Henderson. First fight, the first fight I scored for Henderson pretty clearly. Second fight, that probably should have gone Frankie's way. Frankie is... yeah, And the only time I picked against Frankie and felt, you know, pretty good about the pick was the Max Holloway fight. I think I picked him in the Jose Aldo rematch. I felt like an idiot. Aldo then turns in, you know, one of the finest technical performances of his career. But, such as what? Did I pick... I don't think I picked... Or, I don't think I picked Ortega to beat him, but I did mention that was a real possibility in that fight. Anyway, so I, I don't think he's going to be able to make that turnaround. I, it, it's just crazy. That'd be crazy for somebody in their physical prime. Brink Edgar's almost 40. Still in better shape than I am, and, you know, I'm four to five years younger than the guy, but still. Anyway, that was kind of the big news. Uh, let's take a look at the other stuff. Uh, I think the only kind of other kind of major thing was the UFC did a bit of house cleaning. I mentioned it briefly earlier. Liz Carmouche has been released by the UFC. The circumstances around that were uh, that sucked. Like, look, Liz Carmouche was one half of one of the worst fights of the year when she fought Valentina Shevchenko. Unbelievably dull fight. Shevchenko bears a bit of responsibility for that, but the bulk of kind of why it played out the way it played out does fall on Carmouche in that respect. I am not annoyed that she's not in the UFC anymore. I'm, let me be clear about that. I do not. I am not making this claim purely meritorious, uh, meritoriously. Uh, 
I think there's a meritorious argument that she sh- that she should still be there. You still have Jessica I on roster, but it's more the circumstances around it. Uh, like she was, she had flown out on her own dime to be part of some UFC events in Washington D.C. in preparation for this last card. There's some stuff. There's some pictures of her at some events. Uh, like her with, I think the ones I saw were like her, Neil Magny, Justin Gaethje, and Stephen Miocic. And as she's out there, she's informed. She, like, that's when she gets the news that she's been cut. Uh, just, eh, unfortunate. As far, unfortunate handling of the situation. If the UFC want to cut her, then okay. Like, I'm not opposed to the... I'm not opposed to her no longer being in the UFC on some grand ethical or moral scale. It was handled badly. Um, Gray Maynard has been released. Probably overdue. And Hennan Barrow has been released, former bantamweight champion. In all honesty, the release of Barrow is overdue. The man's on a the man was on a five fight losing streak when he got cut. Um, sucks because Barrow Barrow is one of those guys who I really wish I had a better. There's things about why his downfall happened that I are very clearly traceable. There's others that I I wish I had a better feel for. Because that guy was really, really on top of the world for a while and then just kind of fell off a cliff. He's not the only one that's happened to. um, But he is one of the more stunning examples of top of the food chain, UFC champion, he had, what, two, three title defenses? At least two. Maybe only two, but at least two, because he had the Eddie Wineland one, and then he had the Faber rematch. So again, at least two. And then to just go on that kind of skid, man. But he shouldn't be in the UFC at this point. If you lose five fights in a row, you really shouldn't be in the UFC. I don't mean to speak disparagingly about some of the guys he was losing to, but if you're a former champion, losing to debutantes, I'll say it like I'll say it like this, not because this fighter in question is a bad fighter, but if you take any other like former champion and say you're going to fight someone the caliber of Andre Ewell making their debut, <clears throat> and they lose... <laughs> Should they really still be in the UFC? And it's a harsh... Again, it's a harsh business, man. There's nothing else to it. Alright, uh, let me refresh Twitter really quick. And other than that, I think we're about good to get out of here. I've talked for two hours. The bulk of it on fights I'm very interested in, so... I don't feel... I don't feel bad about it, but... <laughs> uh, you know what? Doesn't seem like anything crazy broke over the last two hours or so, so yeah, let's go ahead and get into plugs and we'll call that good. Alright. Thank you to everyone who read, be that my live coverage or the full report on UFC on ESPN 7. It is in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com Last Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood, myself, Mark Radlich, and Alexis Hayner reviewed Ryan Johnson's Knives Out 
One of the better films of the year, from where I sit. A lot of fun. Had a lot of fun with it. That's how I should phrase that. Uh, This Saturday, UFC 245. Oh, this Friday, I will be filling in uh, to cover WWE's Friday Night SmackDown. Uh, Apparently, there's some other professional wrestling event that Larry Zonka will be covering. So I'm going to be doing that. So if you're so inclined, stop by the wrestling zone and say hi. I, I, uh, It's weird. I try to keep loosely abreast with professional wrestling, but I haven't sat down and actively watched it in a, quite a while. Eh, quite a while might be a bit of a stretch, but you know, actively like week to week to week to week, pay-per-view to pay-per-view to pay-per-view. And it's been a while. I, I might catch stuff here or there, but... So, I'll be doing that. That'll be uh, something. And we'll be back here next... Oh, yeah. And, again, over the week, I believe Tuesday and Wednesday is kind of what I'm going to be aiming for. If not Tuesday, Wednesday, then Wednesday, Thursday. The uh, skill studies for... One for Colby Covington, one for Kamaru Usman, ahead of UFC 245, should be dropping. So, keep your eyes and ears and various electronic devices here on the 411 Podcasting Network. Be that Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, wherever you got us. I, however you found us, thank you. That's really the long and the short of it. Uh, so thank you to everyone for that. Be back next week. Until then, stay safe out there and... Continue to be well, be safe, and behave.